Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Why do people go bald? Why are baboons' bums red? What's a light year? Why do leaves go brown in the autumn? Why do monkeys like bananas? Why do some things glow in the Why dark? Why do animals not understand humans? Why do my receipts fade after a year? Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientist with me, Sue Marchant and Dave Ansell. First of all, um, please keep us up to date with the latest science news. Well, something I thought was interesting this week is that Britain has now got a new land speed record. Wow. Um, There's one that has just broken the land speed record for steam-powered cars. Right. Um, there's a team which has built a car called Inspiration. It's 7.6 metres long. It weighs three tonnes. It runs on LPG. It's got 12 boilers, heating steam up to 400 degrees C. It's got a steam turbine in the back. It sounds like a jet engine running. It's essentially a <laughs> jet engine where it's making st- steam pushing through a jet engine, about 360 horsepower. Um, and it got up to 100, maximum speed, 151 miles an hour. Average speed both directions of the measured mile of 148 miles an hour, which is quite impressive. What I think is actually more impressive, though, is that the, this, the, the record, which is just beaten, has stood since 1906, so over 100 years. Um, and the previous car, which um, went 127 miles an hour, was a Stanley Steamer. Um, there was a guy called, a, a nutter called Fred Marriott driving this thing. <laughs> um, it's called the Stanley Rocket Racer. It basically looked like an inverted canoe. It did 127 miles an hour, not with the steam turbine, just with an all backwards and forwards kind of conventional steam engine. Fantastic. Um, and next year, in 1907, it probably did 150 miles an hour before hitting a bump and crashing and <gasps> breaking to pieces. But it's incredible that it's one of these areas of science where no one hasn't done that much research on. Steam cars were like the height of technology in 1906. Mm. But after about 1920, internal combustion engines were just better, more efficient, easier, and no one really bothered researching them. So even now, with incredible amounts of all sorts of computer designs and build a huge, great, really high-tech car, it only just beats a thing made in 1906. That is fantastic. Good old Stanley the Steamer, that's what I say. (laughs) Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. All right, we've got lots of questions coming in. Let's press on with our questions right away, Dr Dave, because we have quite a lot of them. Now then, um, the question for Dr. Dave says, Mike, domestic printers connected to computers, how do they differentiate between different colours? Dave? Not quite sure what you mean by differentiate between different colours, Mike, but basically the way a colour printer works is the computer sends it code down the cable, um, especially with modern USB um, cable. It's essentially a bit like Morse code down the cable. So it'll be different codes, which mean different colours, um, with um, big posh um, Laser printers, you're not. It's not even just sending each pixel. They're sort of telling it to draw, write a letter there, or draw a draw, draw a line here and here, and then it builds up a picture in its memory, and then it prints it out. So basically, it builds up a sort of um, a dot matrix, a matrix of um, pixels. So it's a bit like if you imagine a piece of graph paper. It has a number associated with each square of the graph paper, 
um, which is its which is the amount of red, different kinds of ink. So it would have um, probably cyan, yellow, and magenta ink. So kind of turquoise, yellow, and a sort of purple color inks, and some black. It'll work out how much of each of those ink it needs for each um, square on the graph paper. Each of these squares in the uh, on the graph paper are actually really really small, mm. maybe far less than a millimeter, tenth of yeah. a millimeter, even smaller. It then, depending on the technology of the um, printer, um, inkjet printers will then squirt little blobs of ink. So it will squirt blobs of um, the different colours, the four different mm. colours of ink on. Um, and then, if you haven't, then if you look really, really close, you can see the little dots. And the, as you move further away, the dots will merge in to make a single colour. Mm. Um, laser printers do it with three different colours of toner. This is basically like powdered plastic. Um, they charge up a roller. Um, then this powdered plastic will stick to the roller. Um, in fact, they, they discharge the roller using um, lights, which is why it's sort of called a laser printer. It doesn't actually involve lasers. Um, discharges the roller, then different amounts of the di- of a, the um, toner will stick to the um, roller. It then gets transferred onto the paper. And it has three or four different rollers for the four different colours of ink. And then it cooks it all to mold- meld it all together. Um, and, yeah, so basically uses four different colours and then those four different colours can be mixed together to make any colour which mm. you can see. And they do it so quickly as well, don't they? Incredibly. In fact, the really impressive thing yeah. is moving the paper around in my idea. Thank you, Mike, for your question. Now, John in Shenfield has sent um, an email in. He says, Hi, Sue. Always lovely to hear you and hope you're well. I'm fabulous. Thank you very much, John. Listening to Ian Pucky, who is standing in for Dave Monk this week, I, he was talking yesterday about wasps. Bzz. Um, I had one in my camper the other night. I have a nest under my decking, which made the subject more interesting. My question is, if wasps only live for one year and only the queen survives, how are the next year's wasps created? Good question, John. Dave. Okay. Um, I think the queens get impregnated um, in the previous year and they store sperm. Um, over the winter in the same way that um, queen bees do. Queen bees only actually mate once in their whole lives and they can live several years and they just store up lots and lots of sperm and they just mix it up with um, the eggs as they need them. Really? Queen bees sort of, when they go off and then they they mate with sometimes several drones and then they go and land and they build up their own colony. And then the queen bee builds her own nest and then raises the first brood of worker bees. And then it slowly, as they get more and more work, uh, worker wasps, so as you get more and more worker wasps, the worker wasps then start looking after the next generations um, during the summer. Um, and then in the last couple of generations are then new queens and new drone wasps, which can then go off, um, will go off and mate, and then the queens go off and hibernate for the winter and start their own colonies the next year. Fascinating stuff. Uh, Dr. Dave, says uh, Dom in Chef Thetford, um, why is it when you add bicarb of soda to vinegar, there is a reaction? What happens? Okay, bicarbonate of soda is sodium hydrogen carbonate. If you dissolve that in water, um, you get little lumps called hydrogen carbonate, um, HCO3, which is negative, and then you get sodium, positive sodium ions floating around uh, inside the water. Um, when you add an acid, so vinegar or lemon juice or anything which tastes sour like that, um, they, uh, basically what an acid means is you get positive hydrogen ions, so H plus ions. They tend to actually float around s- stuck to a water, so you get H- H2O plus H plus gets H3O minus H3O plus. Um, so this po- hydrogen ion then meets up with the bicarbonate ion, the HCO3 minus, and then you get H- H2CO3. 
and that can then break up into water and carbon dioxide and the carbon dioxide can then um, can break off form a gas and will float off form bubbles and float off into the atmosphere so you get that fun fizzing or you get in sherbet sherbet's got uh, bicarbonate soda and citric acid in it hmm. which and then can only react when they're wet so when you put the, um, the two reactants in the um, sherbet on your mouth they dissolve react and Produce that exciting fizzing sensation. Something tells me you like your fountains. <laughs> I loved it when I was a kid. I loved making it. Anyway, um, hi to Dave W, who sent an email and say, why, when boiling water in a kettle, does the sound seem to go very quiet just before it reaches boiling temperature? It's a very good question. Yeah, you've got a kettle there. It boils away. It slowly gets louder and louder and louder. Yeah. That's basically uh, what's happening is you get bubbles of steam formed water boils form steam steam's a gas um, when water boils form steam it expands by one or two thousand times and so you get this bubble um, and the water down near, near the element is really really hot so it's turning into steam but higher up the water's still quite cold because it's not near the element so these bubbles of steam move upwards and as they cool down again all that water's shrinking by a factor of one or two thousand all that steam is shrinking by a factor of one or two thousand mm. and these bubbles collapse and essentially you get these bubbles collapsing. And when as they collapse, the water, on it, the water kind of accelerates as a bubble collapses and collapses and collapses until there's no bubble left anymore and it sort of slaps against itself. And that forms a kind of cracking noise. Particularly small bubbles that make lots and lots of noise and it's actually called cavitation, this collapsing. As the um, kettle almost gets to boiling point, then the bubbles get bigger and bigger and bigger. And so instead of having lots and lots of small small bubbles, each of which make one crack each, the bigger bubbles, um, you have fewer bigger bubbles, which mm. have a lot more steam in them, but still um, there's a lot fewer of the bubbles because the small bubbles all join together to form bigger ones. That means there's a lot fewer bubbles which are collapsing as you get higher up. And also they collapse more slowly because the water's almost at 100 degrees centigrade, so they only collapse slowly as they go up. And once it actually boils, the bubbles don't collapse at all. They just get up to the top and pop and, and release the steam out of the top of the kettle. Mm, and that's why. Thank you, Dr. Dave. Now, um, hi to Matt. He says, uh, what do scientists think our diet will be like in 100 years' time? What about me? Because that requires a lot of farmland, resources to produce, etc. In 100 years, what will we be scoffing, Dr. Dave? My simple answer is I don't really know. <laughs> I don't know what the kind of general consensus is of scientists. I'm not sure there is one, really. Certainly, if we start running out of resources and start, if the population keeps growing then there's going to be more pressure on food. And because meat uses hugely more, um, uses sort of maybe up to 10 times as much food, uh, you've got to feed a cow 10 times as much food as you get out of it mm. by eating the cow. Mm. Um, and this means that meat is going to be a lot more expensive. So if food gets a bit more expensive, then meat's going to be very expensive. And so probably, certainly on average as the whole of the whole world, we're going to end up on a more vegetarian diet doesn't mean you said you won't be eating meat but possibly you'll be eating less meat unless we come up with unless technology comes up with ways around it and ways of producing even more food now our next question comes from giles uh, in hertfordshire he says the trick of getting a boiled egg into a bottle how is that done dr dave i've never seen one of you um I've, I've done it a couple of times. Have you? Well, one with li limited success during the uh, during a show, which was slightly embarrassing. But anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> boom, yeah, not quite. More of a sort of flop. Splat. But anyway, yeah, um, okay. The, the first trick is you've got to peel the egg, um, which is sounds a bit like cheating. But okay, you, you peel the egg. Yep. 
and then you have a bottle with a hole in the with a hole in the top, which yeah. is a bit smaller than the egg. Yeah. Um, you then need to get somehow get this egg into the bottle. Um, the trick is you want to reduce the pressure inside the bottle. So one way of doing it is you light a match and drop the match in the bottle. That heats up the air in the bottle. Bottle the air expands. If you then well now the air's expanded. If you um, put the egg over the top, the match goes out. Then the air inside the bottle is going to cool down and shrink. Um, and so the pressure inside the bottle reduces. The air pressure on the outside of the bottle is still the same. So there's less air pushing up on the egg than it's pushing down from the outside. So the air on the outside just pushes the egg into the bottle nice and gently. The real trick is how to get the, the egg out again. <laughs> it doesn't work if you suck. But the, the, the trick is then if you hold the bottle up, up, sort of up in the air so the egg is sealing the case and blow into the bottle, increases the pressure inside the bottle and the egg gets pushed out. If you're enjoying Ask the Naked Scientist, then you might like to check out The Naked Scientist, our regular roundup of the world's best science. Each week we take a look at the latest science news, talk to top researchers working at the coalface of discovery, and also get our hands dirty with a science experiment that you can join in with too. So make it a date and prepare to strip down science on the web at nakedscientist.com slash podcast. Um, Mike in Colchester has said, uh, do aeroplane wings and helicopter blades work on the same principle? Simple answer is yes. Um, they both essentially work by deflecting air downwards. Um, aeroplane wing, on very simplest um, thing, if you get a piece of paper and drag it through the air at an angle, the air, air, um, it hits air. Um, if you imagine the air moving past it, the air hits the piece of paper, gets bent downwards. Um, and if it also tends to stick to the top and get bent downwards on the top as well. Um, this means that if the the wing or the piece of paper is pushing air downwards, uh, if you push something, it pushes you back. Um, Isaac Newton worked this out. Every action has equal opposite reaction. So if the wing is pushing air downwards, then the wing is pushed upwards. Um, a helicopter blade is basically a wing which is spinning. Uh, basically, uh, the problem with the wing is it can only push air downwards if it's moving. Um, so planes don't work very well if they're stationary, they just fall out of the sky. So how do you make something which hovers? You have to make a wing which moves even if the plane's stationary. So the solution is you make the wing go round and round in circles on the top of a helicopter, mm. um, which is fine. The only problem is if you try and make a helicopter go very, very fast, um, then if it's moving very quickly, then the blade which is moving forwards um, is going to be moving fast through the... Is going to be moving fast through the air and the, uh, it's faster than the, than the plane is moving through the air the blade moving backwards is going slower so you get more lift on one side than the other side so they have to have all sorts of complex mechanisms so when the, the blade is moving backwards has to be moving through the air at a bigger angle so it gets extra lift than the blade moving forwards which is moving at a very very shallow angle so that's what makes helicopters really so you have to have a very complicated joint which is carrying lots and lots of force and lots of torque um, to attach the rotor blades on, which is why helicopters are quite are very expensive and very difficult to make. And there's a limit to how big you can make them because you just can't make the, the mechanisms strong enough. Now, Ian in Lowestoft has texted in, said, Hi, Sue and Dr. Dave. Why is it that I can sometimes pick up AM radio signals from Holland, etc.? However, the same never happens with FM transitions. Ian in Lowestoft. Okay. Um, the diff um, uh, AM radio wa uh, waves are much lower frequency. That means they've got a much longer wavelength. Um, and this basically, um, if you've got 
if you've got light, uh, all forms of radio waves are kind of light. And if you've got light and if you shine, normally you think of light going just in dead straight lines. So if you have an object blocking the way between you and the light, you get a really sharp shadow. But actually, if you look at it carefully, because light's a wave, you actually get um, light sort of bleeding around the edges of an object. So the mm -hmm. edges of the shadow can get a bit of light in. So radio waves do the same thing. It's called diffraction. It will tend to bleed around the edges of a shadow. Mm -hmm. So even if you're round the, over the curvature of the Earth, so the reason why we can't pick up, we can't see something um, in Holland is because the Earth curves. So light going in a straight line will never get around the corner. Um, now the um, light tends to only diffract a, a few wavelengths. So the longer the wavelength of light, the better it will diffract around corners. Um, so if you use a very very long wavelength, like medium wave or even better long wave then it will tend to diffract around the corner and you can pick up signals from um, over the horizon. So you can pick up signals from um, mm. all over, from that, over hundreds of miles away. Mm. Um, whereas FM is a much shorter wavelength, um, the wavelengths are a few metres, so it doesn't go around the corner nearly as well, so it doesn't diffract around the corner nearly as well. Um, the only exception is shortwave, which has actually got a shorter wavelength than um, Long wave, as the name mm. suggests, mm. Um, but that can actually bounce off a layer in the atmosphere called mm. the ionosphere, which is really high up above the um, stratosphere. Um, and you can actually get reflections off the ionosphere, and that can go thousands and thousands of miles. It can actually reflect off the ionosphere and then off the ground again. Mm. And you can pick it up thousands and thousands of miles. Mm. So, yeah, normally the longer the wavelength, the further it'll go. Mm. Um, June in Braintree has called in. She says, I know tarantulas can bite, but can any of the larger household spiders bite as well? I've got a friendly one in my house at the moment. It was in the kitchen, and then... Um, uh, I went up to the bathroom and it got upstairs into the bathroom as well, so it must have gone up the stairs. I keep taking it out, but it keeps coming in. So, can they bite, though? Um, all spiders can bite. Whether they can bite us is, a, is the question, because hmm. um, all spiders, I'll put you, um, all the spiders I know of, I'm knowing um, biology, yeah. there's always an exception to the, any rule. Yeah. But um, spiders make their living by eating, uh, they're carnivorous, they eat other creatures, normally other small insects, tarantulas, they can eat actually things like birds and small mammals. And the way they kill things is by injecting um, venom into them, um, then they paralyse them or kill them, and they can inject um, things into the, into the insects which will slowly dissolve their, in, 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 their insides. Oh, don't and then tell they me suck the insides out. Yeah. Lovely. So all spiders can bite, it's just whether they're big enough, whether their teeth are big enough and strong enough to puncture your skin. Um, I think there are a couple of spiders in this country which can bite, but none of them which will do you much harm. Certainly it, nothing worse than really a mosquito bite or something. They hurt a bit, but not, not do you any harm. So, yes, other, other smaller spiders can bite, but in this country we're pretty safe, thanks to our climate. Um, here's one for you, and it's quite a long one from Tad. He says, a question for Dr. Dave, please. The birth of the universe was said to have happened with the Big Bang. A phenomenally small but dense sphere possibly exploded and the universe began to expand outwards. To visualise this as a radio programme, we may think of it as a rocket we see on a bonfire night that produces an exploding chrysanthemum effect. Each component of the universe... Gas, stars and galaxies are all moving outwards from the point of the original explosion and away from each other. We can check this by measuring the light waves coming from the celestial bodies in the blue shift or red shift and this tells us if an object is moving towards us or away from us. Far from moving away from us, however, scientists have discovered that the Andromeda galaxy actually is on collision course with our own Milky Way. 
any idea what might have caused this to alter cause? I think, I think there's a few million, a few probably hundreds of millions of years before it could actually come anywhere. It's actually going to come anywhere close to us, if not billions of years. Um, but yes, everything, or, there's a general tendency for the further away you go, uh, the further away things are, the more they're moving away from us. That doesn't mean that everything everywhere is moving away from us. Because just in general, some things are moving. If, if nothing was moving away from us, some, some things are moving towards us and some things are moving away from us. I mean, yeah, you sort of you walk around outside and some people walk towards you, some people move, move away. Um, if you look, look out inside our own galaxy, some stars are moving towards us, some stars are moving away from us. So, so for a start, the, the motions are all pretty random. And then you add to the, on top of this a tendency for, um, on average, things to be moving away from us. Um, and so that means that. So, especially when things are quite close to us, the Andromeda Galaxy, by the standards of the universe, is actually is it's the closest major galaxy to us. By those standards, it's quite close. So, if it just happens to be randomly moving towards us, um, and then the the tendency for things to be moving away from us isn't going to be over, overcome, so it can still be moving towards us. Um, there are other galaxies further away which are moving towards us, but the further away you look, the rarer they become, because. The further away, because the further away you look, the bigger the tendency for things to be moving away from us. Mm. So basically, just it's quite close to us, and randomly, some things are coming towards us, and some things are going away. Hmm. Okay, well, more uh, texts and emails coming in as well. Who have we got now? Um, Derek in Wellingborough um, says, if we evolve from apes, then why genetically do we still have the primitive form, and what initiated this differential discipline? genetically somewhere down the line um why have not other species um like crocodiles etc developed also many thanks from derek oh it's a tricky one dave that is a very it's quite a deep question why have i think it, it's sort of to do with what evolution is um we 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 I think looking at ourselves we obviously think that we're the pinnacle of evolution but we're not um, evolution doesn't have any direction all it does is it at any, any particular generation, all it says is that any particular generation, the creatures which are best at surviving will survive. And because we've got inheritance, we inherit our parents' DNA, that means the next generation will probably be better at surviving than the last generation. Mm-hmm. Um, so slowly things get better and better adapted to a certain set of circumstances. And, and we have common ancestors with crocodiles hundreds of millions of years ago. And if you have a population, parts of the population happen to be in an environment where it was better to survive by um, being in one way, and another part of the population was found it better at surviving by being in another way. Why are we the only creatures which seem to have developed sentient, be, be able to know what we are, be able to build things? I guess because it's actually very difficult to evolve um, our level of tel- intelligence with the ability to build things. Mm. Um, every stage has got to be better at surviving the last stage. And yeah. I think the only way that humans have evolved is through a particularly fortuitous set of environments and climate change over millions and millions of years. And you happen to have got every in every generation, it's been better to get more like a human. And then all of a sudden, for, I mean, for a long time, humans were incredibly unsuccessful. They think our population went down only to about a couple of thousand at some point, maybe a, few, uh, a million years ago, or even less than that. 
and it just so happens that this incredibly unsuccessful ape, which seemed to be putting all of its effort into creating these big brains, and normally a big brain is a really bad idea. Big brains eat, use a huge amount of energy. They use about a third of our energy, and we're sitting around not doing anything. For any other kind, of, for any creature, that's a really bad idea because you're burning all this energy, which you could be using for reproducing and having more children. But it just happens that through probably some weird sexual selection thing at some point, um, apes found other uh, other apes who were intelligent, more attractive than thicker other apes. So slowly they um, evolve, probably through sexu- sexual selection, all sorts of other things to get more and more intelligent. And then we discovered, uh, and then tool, and that happened to have the side effect of being able to use tools and be able to build big, complicated societies. And all of a sudden, um, a few tens of thousands of years ago, we suddenly took off and became incredibly successful. So, yeah, it's just there haven't been all the intermediate steps for a crocodile to become intelligent and being able to make space rockets. Right. A couple of questions here. Malk made an observation. He said, um, re-radio waves, they can, on odd occasions, play extremely odd tricks. I once heard Land's End Marine Radio on 500 KCs when we were off the Indian coast. (gasps) Yeah, it's probably the um, ionosphere playing tricks. Sometimes it, it can, uh, especially if you get solar wind bumping into it, lots of charged particles flying off the sun, they can distort it and do all sorts of strange things. And sometimes you get radio bounce in all sorts of strange direction. Right. Um, here we go. Hi, Susie Yuki. Hi, Doc, says Nigel in Willem Park, Milton Keynes. I'm back online at last. Blooming technology. Um, this is a daft question. Don't we all just love all this evolution stuff? Humans have only been sapient for a very short time and yet made huge advances. Other species don't appear to show any sign on the huge changes we made despite almost being unchanged for millennia. As in uh, other species haven't been changed by all of the changes we've mm. made. And there certainly have been some species which have changed. There was, there was a fairly classic case of um, butterflies which... Uh, as the uh, environment got sootier during the 19th century, um, slowly got went from being mostly white to being mostly black. Mm. Um, certainly when we've had a direct effect on species, they've had really radical changes like dogs. Mm. Um, in fact, dogs, I mean, in many, if, we didn't, if, um, if we didn't all call them dogs, you could, if you came here from another planet, you'd think they were lots of different species. Because yeah, I mean, you would never think a great, great Dane was at all related to a little tiny Pekingese or something. That's true. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, we are certainly have, I mean, having effects, and we're, we've bred all sorts of new features into bacteria by um, attempting to kill them with antibiotics. And the antibiotic resistance is coming along. And the other thing is that um, recently fish seem to be, eat fish in where they've been heavily fished. Because mm. yeah. um, there are lots of rules that you can only take fish which are bigger than a certain size. Various fish populations in the sea um, have attempt, are evolving smaller. Because the fish which don't mature, if if if, they, if they're only if you're only allowed to take fish which are more than I don't know a foot, a foot long, mm. if if you if you're a fish which matures at um, eleven and a half inches long, then you don't get caught by the fish. <laughs> <laughs> so animals are evolving um, from our effects and lots of behavioural effects as well. That's it for this week. Our doctors will be back with me next week for more Ask the Naked Scientist. But don't forget, you can also catch them on the Naked Scientist podcast, which you can find on the Naked Scientist website, www.nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. 
the nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.